What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Park Church Podcast. I'm your host, James Lapine. I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. Here's what we do on this show. We talk with well-known authors, leaders, thinkers, etc. We take their thoughts and ideas and we distill those down into practical next steps that you can incorporate into your everyday life. We take the theory, we make it actionable. Our guest on today's episode is Mark DeMoss. Mark is a friend of mine. He's a recognized leader in the multi-ethnic uh, church movement. He planted a church in, in Central Arkansas called, called the Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas. That was in 2001. He continues to serve as their directional leader today. He's written five books on this topic of, of multi-ethnic churches, um, including Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church. That, that was chosen as a finalist for a Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. Uh, so he's he's an excellent author, excellent speaker, uh, really, really appreciate the voice that he is as we think about how uh, does the church pursue a multi-ethnic congregation. Um, so here are a few of the things that we talked about on the show. We talk about uh, why the Apostle Paul got jailed for preaching against racism. Uh, we talk about, Mark, Mark answers the question, if a church isn't intentionally seeking to be multi-ethnic, is that church acting unbiblically? Uh, we talk about what advice he'd give to a pastor of a large, homogenous church uh, who desires to become multi-ethnic. And we talk about the biggest obstacles that he's overcome while he's been building and leading a multi-ethnic church. Uh, so I think you're really going to like the show. We mention a lot of resources. They're all really helpful. You can always find those at parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. And there, just click on Mark DeMoss's name, and that'll take you to the episode page where you can find all the resources that we discuss. Um, if you like today's episode, if you've liked previous episodes, I'd ask you to do two things. Hop into iTunes, click the subscribe button so that you get notified when new shows come out. Uh, and then while you're in there, rate and review us. That's just going to help other people find the show. So if you're enjoying it, you want other people to know about it, that's a, a great, uh, simple way for you to for you to make that happen. Um, okay, that's all I got for you guys. Let's jump right into this episode with Mark DeMoss. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be with James. Yeah, we're excited to have you on today. Um, really excited for our people to hear from you on, uh, on building and leading um, healthy, multi-ethnic churches. Um, I want to start off with a quote that I've heard you uh, say often. I guess it's a question that you ask often. You say, um, if the kingdom of heaven isn't segregated, why on earth is the church? Uh, would you unpack that concept for us? Yeah, James. Well, it's great to be with you again and to your listeners today. That is a fundamental question that I began to ask myself in the uh, late 90s uh, here in Little Rock, Arkansas, working in a, a tremendous church uh, that I was at here, but otherwise systemically segregated by race and class. And I began to reflect, as the question says, if the kingdom of heaven's not segregated, why on earth is the church? And that, that is really a, a fundamental question that then if you, if you have the passion, and I believe we should, particularly as pastors and ministry leaders today, to explore the answer to that, what you find is that, um, that there's multiple reasons for that. But ultimately, it takes you into the New Testament to recognize that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today multi-ethnic. Uh, it was Jew, believing Jews and Gentiles, walking, working, and worshiping God together as one. And this provided the credible, uh, the credible message. It, it fanned the flames of a credible gospel uh, into a diverse society that the gospel, the local church, the kingdom of God was not just for one kind of person, 
or one demographic group. It was for everyone. And this gave the credibility in that society to advance the message. And this is very little of this is understood still today in the, the broader evangelical church, although over the last 15 to 20 years, uh, we've made great strides in terms of helping people to understand this. So the fact is, when we die and when in, in the eschatological, uh, you know, kingdom of God, when it's all said and done, there's not going to be, you know, uh, the blacks on one side, the whites on another side, the Hispanics, Asians, what have you, rich and poor. We will all be there, as it says in Revelation 7 9, uh, worshiping God together as one. And in Revelation 7 9, it says, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. So, they're still distinctive, and yet we're one. And this is what, exactly what Christ prayed on the night before he died, that we would be one so that the world would know God's love and believe. That's awesome. Yeah, I, a lot of what you're talking about there, um, I was reading in your book, which I bought as Ethnic Blends. You, you wrote this with Harry Lee. You, you told me before we uh, got on the call here that that's been repackaged now as leading a healthy multi-ethnic church. So I just want to go ahead and recommend that to anybody who's listening Pick up that book and read it. It's unbelievably helpful as you think about um, seeing this uh, kingdom vision realized here here on earth. Um, I'd love to to jump into the, you discuss the churches of the New Testament churches of Ephesus and Antioch in particular in that book. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what these churches probably looked like um, and, and that biblical mandate to to have multi ethnic churches? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we call, it is a biblical mandate in, in that this is exactly what Christ envisioned. Uh, Luke describes in the book of Acts, and Paul prescribes throughout his writings for the church, namely that uh, the gospel, the church, uh, the kingdom of God is for all people, not just for one. And when you have that, particularly to get to Antioch and, and Ephesus, like you're talking about, you have to understand this biblical mandate. So, very quickly, on the night before Christ dies, he envisions a church where diverse people will walk, work, worship God together as one. He prays very specifically, John 17, 20 through 23, that we would be one. And in that passage are Greek henna clauses that basically say, if we will be one, but if I'm praying that, Christ said this, if they will be one, meaning everyone who comes after the disciples, meaning the church, if we will be one, but I can't guarantee we'll be one, but if we will be one, he says, the world will know God's love and believe. And so this is the greatest evangelistic tool given to the church by none other than Jesus Christ is the unity of diverse believers walking, working, worshiping God together as one. Hmm. Christ envisions the multi-ethnic church the night before he dies. What happens then is Luke, who's a disciple of Paul, throughout the book of Acts, therefore he begins to tell you the story of how you move from the Great Commission from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world, not just with the gospel, but with a believable or credible church. And and so as he goes through that, of course, in our time on a podcast, I talk about this in the book, so won't go into it all here. But the point is, is that in the church of Jerusalem, this is largely and predominantly a homogeneous church. These are Jewish people in Jerusalem who are saved at Pentecost and form the initial church. But very quickly by Acts 6, they run into division of language and had to overcome that persecution comes to the church at Jerusalem, uh, Acts 8 and beyond. And in Acts 11, we're told that persecution drives this church out of Jerusalem. By the way, that's a great study, James. God looked in the eyes of these men, Peter, James, you know, John, and said, go, and they never went. They stayed in Jerusalem, by and large, for most of their ministry. We have to ask why they did that. And the reason is, it's the explosive growth at Jerusalem led to internal focus. And that's what often happens 
in the American church. We're looking for explosive, homogeneous growth, but that more often than not leads to internal focus. So God said go. They said no. He persecutes them, drives them out. And when you get to Antioch, Acts 11, it says that, uh, that the believers that were scattered there through persecution came to Antioch and for the first time in, in history not only shared the gospel with Jewish people, but also with the Gentiles. And three times in the next six verses, Acts 11, 19 through 26, you read that large numbers of people are getting saved, just like they were in Jerusalem, but it's a different kind of number. It's a diverse group of people. And therefore, this church becomes the first church to willingly send missionaries to the world. It's the first church to take up a collection for the poor, uh, Acts 11, uh, 27 and following of the prophet Agabus. Why does this church, not Jerusalem, send missionaries to the world? Why does this church, not Jerusalem, take up a collection for the poor when faced with famine? Why? It's because this, when your church is healthy and multi-ethnic, which I, of course, include economic diversity, mission is not a program. It is who you are. It's not organizational. It's organic. It flows from the very heart of the people who know the diverse people of a society, therefore care for it. So Antioch develops as an intentional multi-ethnic church plant by scattered believers through persecution in Jerusalem and sends its missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, of course, Acts 13.1, list the pastors of the church at Antioch by ethnicity. Two are from Africa, one from Asia Minor, one from the Middle East, one from the Mediterranean. And this is where Luke is describing the development of the church from a single focus on one specific people group, Jews, Acts 2-4, through 4, to the uttermost parts of the world by the time, at the end, Paul is before the Roman government. All that's to say is that ultimately that takes you to the writings of Paul in, 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 in Ephesians and, of course, the book of Romans, Galatians, Colossians. They all have the same message. It's the same man with the same message for the church, uh, wherever he goes, of course, applied in different contexts. And the church at Ephesus is a multi-ethnic church, started that way as Paul started all his churches, speaking first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Acts 19 shows that. It develops as a multi-ethnic church. And the bottom line is, at, a, at Ephesus, like in the churches of Galatia, even in the church at Rome, Paul is having to advocate for what you could simply call the gospel of Gentile inclusion. Hmm. The Jews had no problem at all listening or thinking that perhaps we got this wrong with Jesus, understanding what we would call the gospel today, what we preach, that is the atonement of Christ, death, burial, resurrection, that is the gospel and that's what Paul preached. But what most people don't realize is that, if I can say it like this, there's actually two Gospels in the book of Romans, for instance. And this plays into the Ephesians and, and the other churches as well. In Romans 16.25, have your listeners go to Romans 16.25, where Paul says, and he prays for the church. He says, I pray uh, for the church. And he says that you'll be established by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus. That's what he says. He says, my gospel. And that's not the preaching of Jesus. That's what's connected by Anne. What is Paul's gospel? Ephesians 3, verse 6. It's essentially Gentile inclusion, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what I like to call capital G gospel, because the word gospel just means good news. But the capital G gospel, meaning the redemption of Christ, that gospel, the local church, the kingdom of God, is not just for the Jews, it's for everybody. This was Paul's life, it's his message, it's his heartbeat. He even calls this idea his own gospel, his own good news, built off the capital G gospel. And we know all this because in Acts chapter, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 21, uh, 22, when Paul is arrested in the temple, he gives a speech before the Jewish people. Of course, he's arrested in the temple 
for what they said. He, they believed he brought a Gentile into the Jewish court. And, and if I could, this is the equivalent of a church in, in the racist history of America. There, uh, somebody bringing a black man into a white church, and the people threw a fit. Hmm. And that's what he did. And so he brings up and he speaks on the steps. He shares his story, shares the gospel. And he gets to a point in Acts 22, verse 21, and he says this, And then he said to me, meaning Jesus, he said, And then he said to me, Get up and go, for I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. The very next verse, James, in Acts 22, 22, 21, it says this, And they listened to him up until this statement. And then they said, away with him, he's not fit to live. This is the exact reason Paul ends up in a Roman prison, not for preaching the capital G gospel, the atonement and resurrection of Christ, redemption through Christ. He is arrested specifically and ends up in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel of Gentile inclusion, what he calls his, his gospel, Romans 16.25, which is spoken to in the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, etc. So in the book of Ephesians, and I'll finish here, the theme of the book is the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. And in chapter 1, it's our individual unity with God through faith in Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, the unity of Jews and Gentiles uh, across the divisions and distinctions of this world that so often and otherwise divide. Chapters 4, 5, uh, into early 6, how do you actually live this out in the church? Uh, we are one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not only do we, and we have to live in that. We have to be humble, patient, forgiving, forbearing with one another, love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. And ultimately, he gets to Ephesians 6 when he says, now look, it's going to be extremely difficult because the devil wants to divide you along the lines of flesh and blood, which is essentially the color of a man's skin and the cultural heritage hmm. of a person. Right. That, what else is flesh and blood? It's that, that's what it is in that context. And he says, and this is a scheme of the devil, essentially to divide and conquer us along the lines of color and culture. And if the devil, if he can do that, then what happens is it diminishes, it weakens the credibility of our message of God's love for all people. And that's exactly where the 20th century church ended up in its drive for homogeneous numbers, large churches filled with people who look just like us, who believe just like us, who think just like us, who act just like us. And what that's done, yes, it led to a lot of people going to church, but the, on the backside, now that the country is becoming more increasingly diverse, the unintentional, unintended consequence is that our message is no longer believable. We preach a message of God's love for all people from otherwise systemically segregated churches, and it's undermined the credibility of that capital G gospel. That's what the local church needs to recover today. It's nothing new. It is a reformative movement back to the first century. Preach it. That's awesome. Uh, that's that's unbelievably relevant to where we're at right now. We're we're heading back into the book of Acts uh, this fall. So to get all of that background information is is going to be really really great for uh, for our listeners. So I appreciate that. We're also seeing um, <clears throat> just movements across the country uh, where we're feeling the racial tensions and and we're seeing people longing for racial reconciliation. Um, so I, I really appreciate your words there as well. Um, you mentioned that doing this, that, that trying to uh, both build and grow a, a multi-ethnic church is not easy. It's going to be very difficult. Um, could you share two or three of the main obstacles that you've had to overcome while doing that in Central Arkansas um, and, and how you overcame those obstacles? Yeah, in fact, that uh, entire book you mentioned, Leading a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, Formerly Ethnic Lens, is an entire book devoted to seven common challenges yep. uh, and how to, be over, uh, how to be overcome. Of course, there's personal challenges, 
you know, you got friends and friendship and people that just don't get it. They don't understand it. They're like, why do you want to keep talking about this race stuff? Can't we just <laughs> go on? So, you you know, we, we found that we lost a lot of friendships and relationships. Hmm. Uh, this is common. There's theological challenges because uh, as I had one seminary professor tell me about, uh, well, now about 10, 12 years ago, he said to me because he heard me talking, he goes, you got to be careful changing hundreds of years of ecclesiology on what you're saying. And I said, I'm not trying to change anybody's ecclesiology. I'm just preaching. Show me in the word. I, I'm making a theological argument and, and you know, show me. Uh, if I'm wrong, hey, I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong. But to date, after 15 years of preaching this, multiple books, the argument is solid exegetically. And the reason I say that is because when pastors and ministry leaders wade into these waters, you can't do this because of political correctness, the fact that Barack Obama is biracial and somehow represents the changing face of America, right. not because of changing demographics. All that's well and good. But this is rooted in strong theology, all for the sake of the gospel. And, and pastors and ministry leaders wading in these waters need to, to not only for themselves, first of all, immerse themselves in the New Testament theological understanding mandate, etc., but in order to answer the questions from a theological standpoint when you get pushback. So there's theological challenges. Of course, there's cross-cultural relationship challenges or relational challenges, as I say. So we have to, particularly as white people and majority culture of these years, position ourselves in a, in a posture of learning, of listening to uh, people of color, our brothers and sisters, particularly to the pains of the past, uh, et cetera, and to come into touch with that. Um, and, and so that's not so much a give and take. That's a simply being humble and listening and learning and building those relationships long term over time that leads to transparency and trust, cross-cultural competence. So we have to get out of our otherwise homogenous type of relationships to intentionally who are we having lunch with on Friday who's going to the lake with us who are we you know spending time with after church going to a meal building an intentional relation network that is diverse so you can listen learn and ultimately be a part of the solution not a problem these are just a few and the entire book is devoted to those types of challenges and overcoming obstacles but let me just say this too, James. You referenced something in, in, in transition that I think is important. Your church is going to study the book of Acts. It's awesome. What you, what you, one thing that's helpful to understand is who wrote Acts, which is Luke. Mm -hmm. Luke is a disciple of Paul, and Paul gave his life for the Gentile mission, which was the gospel of Gentile inclusion, as we already talked about. Mm -hmm. So it's important to read the book of Acts. Um, yes, you're reading from Luke, but it's really coming through the lens of Paul, and it gives you even more insight to the man, Paul, to what he was about and to what he was preaching. And also in, in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2 through 4, this is a starting point for the church, not the stopping point. The book of Acts is like there's a note played in Acts 1-8, picks up with the Great Commission, and it's like one single note. In a, and by the end of the book, it's a large crescendo. And you have to understand that because so many pastors and ministry leaders take us to Acts chapter 2 through 4 and say, this is the church, this is the kind of church we got to be, we got to be a New Testament church, Acts 2 through you know 4, the church of Jerusalem. What you have to understand, that is not a stopping point, that is the starting point. And you're not a biblical New Testament church, at least till you're to Acts 11, Acts 13, even Acts 16 with the economic diversity of all the testimonies coming out of, uh, out of Europe as Paul gets over in the Macedonian vision. Why is it that Luke tells us of three testimonies, one is rich, one is poor, and one is middle class? And this is the class division. So it's important to understand 
all that, I think, as well. And I love the book of Acts. But those are just a couple of helpful comments as your church gets into that later on. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, that's really helpful. And again, um, leading a healthy multi-ethnic church, Mark outlines a lot of the, uh, some of the, a lot of the obstacles that they've faced. He gives specific stories and, and how they dealt with them. So uh, pick that up if you want to read more about what they've experienced there. Um, next question was going to be, what would be next steps that you'd give to a, a pastor of a larger homogenous church who desires to be multi-ethnic you mentioned some things in, in your last answer in your last answer who are your friends with who are you going to lake with who are you getting meals with um any other thoughts that you want to add there yeah you'll you'll find this funny i literally did a podcast yesterday with um with your old friend uh your father's friend mike clowers yeah he asked the exact same question okay and we talked about this so Great. what this is is there's kind of a two-part answer to this and and and, and this is, again, information, particularly for white majority culture people, of which I'm one. We tend to think individually, but you also have to think about collective. And this goes to a lot of the racial tensions in America. You think about Ferguson, for instance. White people tended to see what Michael Brown did as an individual act and said, well, he shouldn't have harassed the owner at the store and he shouldn't have approached the police car. And, but but African Americans see this. This isn't just an isolated individual instance. This happens to their community. Hence arises Black Lives Matter. So all that's to say is that we tend. You have to realize in asking a question like that, or even thinking about this issue, that at once there's an individual response and there's a collective response for the church. Hmm. So on the individual response, what what would you what do we do? You cannot build a healthy multi ethnic church unless you first have a multi ethnic a healthy multi ethnic life. And that's the kind of stuff that talks about who are you hanging around? How are you widening your influence? Take a look at your Facebook page, your Twitter account, your Instagram. Just go through there and see how many diverse people are on that account. Take away your family, you know, from that. And look, I mean, I've had people do that and, and they'll end up with all white people or all black people. That's not the way you build a healthy multi-ethnic life and to navigate not only in our time, but for our children and now me as a grandfather for my grandchildren. You've got to learn, particularly as white people, to navigate a diverse world the way people of color have had to learn that for a long time in the United States, or you're not going to be effective, particularly with the gospel, moving it forward in a diverse society. So you've got to build a healthy multi-ethnic life on the individual side. Uh, as you move towards the collective side, that's where we have a couple of resources through our national network, Mosaics Global Network, where we offer, we have, for instance, coming out and uh, published with the Wesleyans this uh, October is a, a resource, an eight-week daily devotional small group curriculum called uh, the Multi-Ethnic Conversations, an eight-week journey towards unity in your church. I would recommend it for your church or for anybody because you have basically eight weeks of daily devotional, small bite-sized chunks in and around the very topic and theme we're talking about, living a multi-ethnic life, building a multi-ethnic church. And then, of course, at the end of seven days where you've done some private reflection, you come together with a diverse small group to interact about that. We have churches all over this country, entire denominations using that resource. That's why it's now being published uh, by a national publisher. And this is a very tremendous way to, to bridge the gap, if you will, between the individual response and moving towards the church. So look for multi-ethnic conversations coming out by Wesley Publishing House this October. Um, it's actually available on our website, mosaics.info, M-O-S-A-I-X.info right now in our online store. Uh, we've self-published that, and it'll go to Wesleyans in October. 
that's a bridge. Then the third thing I'd say for the church collectively, and particularly for pastors and ministry leaders, is two quick things to, to begin to move your church towards this. One is you have to begin to empower diverse leaders, not only lay leaders, but people in key leadership positions, even into the pulpit, elder board, et cetera, of your church. This isn't hiring by quota. This is about being intentional for the sake of the gospel and to establish a diverse church. Acts 13.1, as we've already talked about, the five main leaders at the church of Antioch, two from Africa, one from the Middle East, one from Asia Minor, one from, uh, uh, who did I leave out? Africa, Mediterranean. Yeah, exactly. So we have this, and that, we have this, this already modeled in the New Testament. If you're going to have a healthy multi-ethnic church, you've got to model that healthy multi-ethnic relationships and leadership sharing and power sharing, if you will, authority, responsibility from the top. So empowering diverse leaders is a super important key step for multi-ethnic uh, to, to move towards diversity in your church. Uh, it's a put your money where your mouth is kind of credibility thing. The other thing I'd say real quickly and finish with is that you have to understand the difference between assimilation and accommodation. Most churches and people would, would say today in America, we would love to have more diverse people attend our church. And they sincerely believe that and they really mean it. But what they really mean when they say that, and they don't under, they don't think deeply about it, what they're really saying is, is we welcome diverse people as long as they like it the way we do things. Yeah. And, and that's assimilation. So essentially you're asking the, the, the minority, it could be a white person going to a black church. In that setting, the white person would be a minority. You're asking the minority to check their culture at the door and to embrace this, uh, this other culture. And as long as they do that, we're one big happy family. But, but accommodation is the way you build a healthy multi-ethnic church. And that's when the majority culture of a church and leadership shifts in form and practices uh, to welcome the other, as it were, and not their theology. You don't adjust your theology. I get that. I'm not even promoting that. But what you do, for instance, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have to use a guitar every Sunday or a B3 organ every Sunday. So sure. you could have a little gospel music one Sunday. You could have a little contemporary Christian or passion type music. And so to what degree? Uh, are, 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 what about bilingual or trilingual signage in the church? Why are all the slides in English? Um, so there's a lot of things that we do to accommodate, to demonstrate our heart for the other that churches should practice. So we, the majority culture of a church in terms of leadership, background, et cetera, we begin to make accommodations to welcome the other. And, and, and essentially, we are the ones who are adjusting uh, to welcome, not the other way around. So beyond that, I just say in my first book, Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, we talk about seven core commitments of a healthy multi-ethnic church, like embracing the dependence of God, uh, taking intentional steps, again, empowering diverse leaders, building cross-cultural relationships, gaining competence, promoting a spirit of inclusion, and ultimately mobilizing for impact. It's not at all about getting a bunch of diverse believers into a room and singing Kumbaya. It's about turning the power and the pleasure of God that uniquely dwells in that type of unity and diversity, turning it outward to to bless the city, to fulfill the Great Commission, expand the gospel, grow the kingdom, and do good works, advance the common good. And we do that when we work in unity, in diversity, in a very unique way. So those are some of the things I'd say you move from a continuum of dealing with this at an individual level all the way to dealing with it at a corporate or, or um, you know, community level. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. Thanks for that. Um, I, I read in the book, you say you get this question a lot. I, I know it's probably on people's minds, so I want to ask it just so so we can deal with it here. Um 
would you say that if a church is not purposefully and intentionally seeking to be multi-ethnic, that that church is acting unbiblically? Yeah, you know, in the early days, I'd get that question a lot. And, and I would always say, no, I'm not saying that. But I didn't really have a better response than that. Yeah. Here's, here's what I've come to realize over the last 15 to 20 years. It's not that your church is not biblical or not biblical in this regard, uh, or is biblical or not biblical in this regard. It's a matter of corporate sanctification. So what you want to think about, just like in our individual lives in terms of pursuing sanctification, I know that because of the Bible, not that I know what the Bible says, but essentially in, in the, the wisdom of God, I, someday I die and how all it works in terms of time and how I don't know about all that. But there will be a moment in time where I see him face to face and I will be changed into, uh, into his image, which basically means I will become the perfect Mark de Maz. I'll never be Jesus. A lot of people get that confused. Hey, we're going to see Jesus. <laughs> Is we're going to be just like him. I'm like, no, you're not. You know, like, <laughs> there's only one Jesus and you ain't him, right? But what it means is that I will be all my sin, all my imperfection, everything goes away, and I will be the perfect Mark Demas, made in the image of God that he created me to be without all the baggage of sin, etc. That day is coming. We know it biblically. Well, likewise, we know that we're the corporate body, the bride of Christ, the corporate church, or the universal capital C church. Uh, eternal church is going to end up as well. And that's revealed in Revelation 5 and particularly Revelation 7-9, as we mentioned earlier. Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue in the same room, so to speak, in the same body, part of the same bride, worshiping God, uh, I would say walking, working, worshiping God together as one. This is the intended future of the church, which goes all the way back to the beginning when we said, hey, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why is the church? Yeah. So if you realize that's where the church is headed, then you would ask any pastor that's, that would somehow be reluctant in this regard. If I was in your church, and I, let's say, James, you're a pastor. I say to you, hey, James, you say to me, well, hey, Mark, how are you doing in your spiritual life and growth? What I would say, well, you know, James, I'm doing pretty good. In fact, I'm pretty much done. <laughs> I, I, I've really come as far as I can. I've read the Bible a few times. I've learned some things. I've, I've made some change in my life, and I'm pretty much happy in the next 20, 30 years, whatever God gives me. Would you accept that as a pastor? Of course you wouldn't. You'd right. say, well, gosh, we're always growing and learning. That's the same thing we got to say to churches. So we're on a continuum yeah. of corporate sanctification. So it's not that you're biblical or not, you're right or wrong. It's like, where are you on this continuum at this present moment? On the one side, you've got churches that want nothing to do with anyone who's not like them. And on the other side, you have Revelation 7, 9. Hmm. Where are you right now in that journey? And what is the next step or two? that you can take in the next season of your ministry to pursue that corporate sanctification. So we talk to churches about asking some questions. What do you what do you believe theologically about this? Get into the Word. See what we're talking about. What do you understand philosophically? Some churches are Methodist. Some are Baptist. There's philosophy behind it. Maybe some are more Reformed. Some are more Arminian. So in terms of philosophy, what does that mean in terms of pursuing this vision? What can you do practically? When can you do it realistically? If you just simply ask those questions every 6 to 12 months in the rhythm cycle of your church, inching your way forward, the last thing you want to do is split a church in the name of unity. And that's what you'll do if you go too quickly trying to jump from, let's say, stage 3 to stage 10 overnight on this continuum. So the idea is to, to ask these questions and to continue pursue corporate sanctification intentionally over time. One other thing I'd say about this is that we are intentional in evangelism, we are intentional with worship, we're intentional with discipleship. We do all these things with 
unashamedly, and we pursue them as pastoral ministry leaders and in the church, and, and, and we do it with intention. But somehow, when it comes to becoming a, a, a diverse church and reaching out to diverse people, somehow intentionality is, is seemingly bad or quotas or it's not right. And yet that's as much, if not anywhere else, I would argue it is the evangelistic strategy given to to the church. It is the way God disciples us. It's how we can experience the power of worship according to Ephesians 3, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth. But here's the deal. What if I said, if you're the worship pastor, let's say James at your church, and I go, well, how do you do worship on Sunday, James? You go, oh man, we just show up and, you know, we just all take a seat and we just, we just wait for God to fall down on us. You know, right. I said, well, don't you have any plan? Do you have any, oh no, no, we just show up and worship. Hey, I say, well, what about evangelism? How do you tell people, gee, oh man, we just walk around the streets and you know, as God leads, you know, we just somehow people get saved. We just, you don't have a plan. You don't have a strategy. We wouldn't say that about any of these things, right? We'd yeah. laugh about that. It's ludicrous. Why would we do the same thing when it comes to unity and diversity in the church for the sake of the gospel? Mm. We should not be ashamed. It's not, Paul wasn't ashamed. And why do you say, I'm not ashamed? Why? It's the power of salvation to everyone who mm. believes. Mm. To the Jew, yes, but also to the Gentile. And that's what the entire book of Romans is about. He's got to explain that to a home, to a, in a diverse church at Rome. He's got to explain the gospel to bring them together. That's what he does. Oh, I wish I had time to go off about that, but I won't. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I think uh, the vision that you're you're describing there in uh, Revelation seven nine of of what uh, the kingdom of God will look like when we're all uh, made new and, and we're with Jesus. I think people have said that's going to happen someday and that's um, maybe frozen them and, and they haven't been able to take any steps towards trying to see it uh, realized here on this side of heaven. Um, and so I think that step-by-step -step approach saying, where are you on the continuum? And then what can you do today to take a step closer towards that? Um, that, that makes it maybe, I think people have accused this of being an over-realized eschatology. Um, mm. So, so why would you, why would you try to do for something now that isn't going to ultimately happen until Jesus comes back? But I think you said, I think you're responsive. Why wouldn't you try to see that realized here? Uh, and, and why don't you just take the first step where, where you are now? I think that maybe that will be helpful for people who have felt frozen. Uh, yeah. And I think absolutely. And I, I, it's a great point. And it's just such a misunderstanding of things. Just, I think it all is summarized in that phrase, corporate sanctification. Yeah. Because we wouldn't say what, well, you know what? I'm never going to know all I can about Jesus, so I'll just wait. I'll, I'll never, you know, no matter my evangelism efforts are never going to win the entire world to Christ, so why even try? Just let him do it. You know yep. what I'm saying? Yep. We, we wouldn't apply that thinking to any of these other things. And again, like we've said, uh, you know, why would you apply it to this? In fact, I'd make the argument it is the way to win people to Christ. It is the way to disciple. It is the way to worship. And the other thing that people get stuck on, too, uh, James, is that People will say, man, it's just too hard. Well, where in the, in the Bible do you get a pass-on degree of difficulty? <laughs> what, what if Jesus would have said to the Father, you, you want me to go down there and become a Jew and eat Jewish food and speak the language of Jews and live in a you know, mud hut or whatever thatched roof? Are you kidding me? I'm, you know, I'm God. I'm here in heaven. I'm in paradise. Why, am I gonna, why would I do that? It's too hard. Aren't we glad Jesus didn't say it's too hard, right? Mm -hmm. Some people say, well, and, and we, ad we admit that it's a lot easier to go, like the old phrase, birds of a feather flock together. But again, it's not about what you like. People say, well, I just like being with my own people. But I thought we we're to supposed to align the church with the vision of Christ, the vision of the New Testament. 
not get the church to align with our vision, right? So it's not about what you like. No, no de- pastor degree of difficulty. Nowhere in the Bible is it about what you like. And, and these are the kinds of challenge, disruptive thinking that we have to challenge people with because they mean well, but you have to think deeply about what are the effects, particularly in an increasingly diverse society, of our unwillingness to do the hard thing, though it's right, and we're called to do it, of, of making things about what it is we like and prefer Right, our preferences and our comfort versus what we're called to do. And again, getting back to you know what what is natural. People say, well, it's just more natural to be with people who are like you. But you know, when we signed up for this Christian thing, I thought it was about living in the supernatural, right? <laughs> yeah. Getting above and beyond what is otherwise natural. And and so we have to challenge that kind of thinking. Yes, it's hard. It's not always what we like. It's not easy. It's not natural. But nevertheless, it's what Christ called us to, and it's what He in fact modeled in Philippians two. He set aside his privilege, he set aside his position, he set aside his power to to come to us so that he could give us all that, right? His privilege, his position, his power, he came to share that, as it were, to raise us up, to become joint heirs. And so he has done this himself, uh, done the hard thing, done what was not natural, as it were, crossed cultures, uh, took the hard road to bring others up, to enjoy, to have uh, all that he had, and that's that's our model, both individually and corporately. We're to do the same thing. Hmm. Well, we we appreciate the work that you uh, have have done and are doing, and the wisdom that you're able to share with us today. Can we uh, do a couple rapid fire questions as we wrap up here? Sure, you okay. bet. Um, first one: what uh, What's your favorite TV show, movie, or book that you've read or watched recently? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm, I'm reading, um, that book about Kennedy, um, that whole, uh, you know, that series, um, oh, I don't even know the title, Killing Kennedy, I guess, right? Yeah, with, yeah, uh, yeah. I, so I'm reading that. I'm kind of fascinated with some of the insights there, what have you. You know, when it comes to TV shows, I'm all about history. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, uh, watching a, uh, a series right now that's about the English people in the 18, or I'm sorry, 8, 850 to 900. So I, I like just a lot of history stuff, uh, and so I'm, I'm totally into that. Okay, nice. Next question was going to be, what's the nerdiest thing that you're into right now? But I think you just told us what it is. Yeah, yeah <laughs> probably so, like English history from 850 to 900. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and in your book, you talk about how, how you shepherded, shepherded your people through uh, the 08 election um, and just saying up front, hey, we're not going to be endorsing any particular candidates here. Uh, we're not going to be getting in each other's faces. I would appreciate it. You don't have to tell me who you're going to vote for, but can you help our listeners think about th- this upcoming election season? Yeah, you bet. It, it, we don't, as a church, and, and personally, uh, because of my position as well as the, as our church, we don't endorse people, parties, or platforms. Um, I think it's a huge mistake that Christians are making right now, particularly pastoral leaders around the country, and I'm just going to go to my Twitter account. It's been shared quite a few times since I posted it a few days ago. But yeah. I think you'll appreciate uh, appreciate this. But um, it, I, I talk about that it's that people are going to look back, in my opinion, pastors, they're going to look back at this election and, and some of their outspoken statements one way or the other, and they're going to recognize what a mistake that was. And here's the reason. A pastor, we are not pundits. Okay, if you if you were called to be a pundit, then go be a pundit. But if you've been called the pastor, pastor people. Now, someone would say, well, a pastor is a shepherd, and so we should be leading our, our people, etc., and all that. Yes, but we're to lead all people, not just some people. So here's what I, 
I, I, I said a few days ago on this, in the future, I predict well-meaning pastors will realize what a mistake it was to have abandoned peacemaking for punditry. Hmm. And we are called the pastoral people. In our church, I've got the, the head of the state senate. She would be the closest thing to a Nancy Pelosi, what have you, in the state of Arkansas. She's been a member of my church 10 years. I've got a Republican governor appointee running one big agency in the state. He's also a member of my church, right? We have black, we have white. So what we do is focus on peacemaking. We have done messages with our people about how do you, re- how do you speak in a way that brings people together. So when you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, it, it, the thing is, is that people play to their base and everybody does this. So like, I'm just saying, let's say you're a Republican and you are, you're all staunch Republican. And so you're, you're putting on your face and you're a Christian and you're talking about, oh, how bad Hillary Clinton is or whatever, that kind of stuff. Well, what happens? Who likes that on your Facebook page? All the people who think like you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're not winning anybody from the other side. You're not by, by making some argument like that and, or, or it could go the other way. You're all about, you know, Hillary and against Trump. You're only playing to your, to your base. And the likes and the thumbs ups and the shares come from people who already agree with you. Yeah. But all that's doing is further alienating the very people I would think you would want to win to your cause inside. Hmm. So what, what we talk to our people about is how do you represent Christ in the midst of this? Because after the election, it's not about fear. The church is going to be here. Jesus is going to be here. And, and I don't want to be in a position, whether Trump wins or Hillary, to, that I've alienated half the people that I could reach with the gospel because I'm not here to tell you to vote for. I'm here to extend the love of Christ, to call you to the gospel, to call you to redemption. And yes, that has impact on our culture, but I've got to navigate that. It's not so much what we say, but it's how we say it. So let me leave you with this imagery. Uh, there are so many things we could talk about LGBT community, etc. but here's an analogy. In my lifetime, I'm 54 years old, the winds have shifted. And, and we are, in, in, prior to it, and for most of the American history, the wind was at the back of the sails of the gospel, the church boat, if you will. Does that make sense? Yep. So, okay, but in our lifetime, beginning in the course of the 50s and 60s and on to today, the winds have shifted. So if you think about advancing the gospel, advancing peace, being a peacemaker, no closer you can be to Jesus than being a peacemaker, Matthew 5, 9. If that's our calling, that's our role to, to, to win diverse people to Christ. So I'm not talking about black, white, although that's part of it, rich, poor. I'm just saying all the different people, Republicans, Democrats, we're here to represent Christ to all people. Okay. So to move that gospel boat forward, we're now sailing into headwinds. The winds have shifted hmm. and, and we're, the boat has shifted. And in, in sailing, there's a maneuver called tacking. So when the wind shifts and the wind is blowing and your sailboat is now not with the wind behind it, but the wind in front of it blowing against you, the sailors, they do, it's called tacking to the wind. It's a zigzag maneuver. There's quick movements of the sails that keep the boat going forward into headwinds. And that's what we've taught our people in different messages in the last few months. Our role is to be peacemakers, to keep the gospel advancing against the headwinds of our culture. And you can't do that by just bowing up on one side or the other, playing to your effective base and alienating half the other people because they're not just alienating them from you. You're alienating them from the gospel, from the church, from the kingdom of God. 
And at the end of the day, it's not going to be about Hillary Clinton or Bill Trump it's, or, or, or uh, about Donald Trump. It's going to be about advancing the gospel in the aftermath and positioning ourselves now to be seen as those people who can bring people together, not further uh, the painful pol- further the painful polarization mm. that's out there. Mm. So a lot of people would say, well, we've got to speak up. I would say this. Of course you can speak up. In America, it's your right. Uh, to do that, and and some would argue your responsibility, but how the way you speak up, when you speak up, the timing of it, and what it is you say when you do speak up, if that is not pulling people who do not agree with you further towards your side and ultimately to Christ, then driving away, I would say don't say it. I would say that is not the way you say things today. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. I hope this doesn't you know offend anybody. I don't mean to in your church, but. 30 years ago in the church on the issue of LGBT, of course, it wasn't even called that back then, you know, but, but you could say, you could say, um, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah. And it would completely shut the conversation down. Everybody would chuckle and everybody would know what you meant that homosexuality is sin. Homosexuality is wrong. That's what you'd say. Okay. You you may still believe that today that homo- you may have that position homosexuality is a sin is wrong whatever but I can tell you this if you say Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve you have just alienated every other every person you'd otherwise want to win to Christ who is a practicing homosexual struggles with it however you want to couch it so it's not that you it would be wrong for a pastor or a church to to express their beliefs you know based on the word of God and what they would believe in terms of this issue but how you express those beliefs, are they done in a winsome way? Mm. Are they done in a way that actually reaching into the very people, even if you say, oh, it, well, don't you want to reach those people mm. for Jesus, right? You see what I'm saying? So if you come out with Adam and Steve, not Adam and Eve, you're not reaching anybody and you're not fulfilling the work of the pastoral calling to advance the gospel, etc. Uh, so my point is, I, and I'm not giving up my position, although it's very well known. You can go on our line and, and listen to our sermons on it. We've given four in the last three years. But the point is, is that I'm saying, let's just say you are very much adamant uh, about homosexuality being a sin. It's not wrong to say that, to state that. But how you say that needs to be done in a way that is making peace, that is advancing the gospel and seeking to reach into that community to bring the love of Christ and the peace of Christ to these hearts, not further alienate them from the gospel. Yeah, yeah, that's good. The, the, the lack of wisdom and discernment that we see on social media is pretty overwhelming. Yes. Uh, so that's a good word for, for all of us to hear, I think. Before you click that tweet button or that Facebook post, think about yeah. Yeah, what you're saying and how you're saying it. So thank you for that. Um, as, as we close here, tell people where they should go to find your work or to follow you or, or do whatever. Yeah, please do. Um, you can, um, you know, obviously I, I've written several books on Amazon, what have you. I, I don't really keep up my, my markdemoz.com blog, but really you just Google my name, Mark Demoz on Google. It'll pull up different articles, videos, books, resources, um, and, and you can see that. Mosaicchurch.net, of course, is our church here. Um, Mosaics, M-O-S-A-I-X, dot info is our national network advancing the multi-ethnic church. And on that note, I would just say for your own pastoral staff, any other pastors you know, we put on a national conference on the subject of building a healthy multi-ethnic churches every three years. This is our conference here, November 1st through 3rd, Dallas, Texas. 
uh, we're putting on the third national multi-ethnic church conference, 70 credible speakers, everybody from Matt Chandler, Ed Stetzer to Sung Cha Rock, Kathy Kang, you name it. Uh, they're all there. And it's November 1st through 3rd, Dallas, Texas. The website is mosaics2016.com, M-O-S-A-I-X-2016.com. I would say for anybody, whether layperson or pastoral ministry leader, that has a heart for this, is thinking about this. You don't want to miss this conference. It's only $89 to attend, um, and you don't want to miss it because we only do it every three years. So MOSAIX2016.com is the information on that. That's perfect. And, and your name is Mark, D-E-Y-M-A-Z. So when you're Googling that, you can find him that way. Also, uh, we'll post everything that's been mentioned here at www.parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. When you get there, you can click on Mark's name. And there in the show notes, we'll have uh, everything linked up so that you guys can easily find all of the resources that were mentioned here uh, today on the show. So, uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. So, so, so helpful. Hey, James, great to be with you. And let me just say a personal note for your listeners. James grew up in my youth group and, and his <laughs> sister Amy was in my youth yeah. group and his father is a great guy, Bob. So I got to just tell you, as somebody's known your family uh, and, you know, the kids for many, many years, I'm really proud of you, bro. Way to go. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Wasn't that a nice thing for uh, for Mark to say there at the end? Very sweet. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I really enjoyed it. It, it challenged me and encouraged me as we think about uh, how Park Church can uh, pursue multi-ethnicity amongst our bodies. So um, if you guys, if anything stuck out to you that you want to tell me about, I'd love for you to shoot me an email at james at parkchurchdenver.org. Uh, anything that you thought was helpful, if you disagreed with, or anything that stood out from the show, I would always love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, again, if you want to check out the resources that we mentioned, you can go to parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. There you click on Mark DeMaz's name, and that'll take you uh, to a page where you can find links to everything that we talked about today. And if you enjoyed this episode, hop into iTunes, uh, subscribe so that you get notified when new episodes come out, and rate and review us in iTunes. That'll make it easier for other people to find this show. So if you're enjoying it and you want other people to find it, that's a great way uh, to make that happen. Um, that's all I've got for you guys for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.